Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. So, Chris... Big week, yeah. Vanity Fair Oscar party Biggest was this past week of weekend. The year, I think so. Tell me about it. Your world that you cover is far more interesting than the <laughs> political world that I cover. So give me the hot goss. Who is the most interesting? <laughs> the most surprising? All of it. I don't know if it's more interesting. Um, actually, there are some intersection points because yeah. I was at the Vanity Fair Oscar party and. Who waltzed in but Nancy Pelosi looking regal and gorgeous and very at home in Hollywood. Very much a space that I feel like she feels comfortable in. I could see that. So I interviewed her a couple years ago, and I've never felt the need to sit up straighter in an interview (laughs) with, like, anyone. Oh, that's so funny. And she's in this new chapter in her life where she's... You know, she's no longer speaker. Mm-hmm. She's kind of living it up. Letting her hair down even, yeah. you know. Yeah. I didn't talk to her per se, you know. But I did see her, you know, bopping around, you know, making the rounds. I would love to, like, be a fly on the wall for any of those conversations. Pelosi talking to Kate Blanchett, <laughs> like Michael V. Jordan, all of it. That's just very um, – that's very – exciting to me. Sort of this collision of our worlds. Yeah. You know, they rarely intertwine, but when they do, you know, things can really pop off. It can be really special. And she's definitely one of the few people who I think could survive and thrive in that (laughs) environment. Like, you're not going to see, like, Chuck Grassley, like, rubbing elbows. You're listening to a special bonus episode of Inside the Hive. Where Vanity Fair writers tackled the week's news in politics, media, and entertainment. I'm Chris Murphy, a staff writer at Vanity Fair, covering entertainment and popular culture for the Hollywood section. And I'm Abigail Tracy, the national political reporter at Vanity Fair. This is the latest in a series of bonus episodes with Vanity Fair writers from In and Outside the Hive. It's in addition to the regularly scheduled programming from co-hosts Joe Hagan and Emily Jane Fox. In this episode, we're looking at how Generation Z, Gen Z, does politics in Washington, D.C., and what this means for the gerontocracy currently running the place. And I think, like, the best place to start, and the person I'm absolutely so fascinated by, who I think is so cool and, like, boggles my mind, (laughs) is Maxwell Frost, the youngest Congress member from Florida, who you, Abby, wrote an incredible profile of that was so fantastic. It was definitely fun. So just a little background on (laughs) Maxwell Frost. So he's from Florida. As you said, he filled the seat of Val Demings, who ran against Marco Rubio for Senate. She did not win, but he filled her seat in Congress. And he is, as you said, the first Gen Z member. So Mm -hmm. he was elected at 25 years old. Wow. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? No. 
I was such a mess. I <laughs> like I can't do policy at twenty five. Like I can I can't run even... a campaign and you know get actual adults to vote for me. That's in that's absolutely absurd. Absolutely, absolutely absurd. I don't even think at twenty five I could have gotten my parents to vote for me. But what is his platform? What does he stand for? Why was he elected? <laughs> um, so he actually had a quite a competitive primary, Democratic mm. primary. So he won the seat by a lot, but like there was a very active like primary and a lot of what he ran on were these really progressive things. If we want bold change on guns, reproductive health and affordable housing, we can't keep electing the same politicians. But also, you know, he does very much still fall into that, you know, Medicare for all, uh-huh. kind of those like the Bernie Sanders, like okay. just like to a, kind of like contextualize totally, it, no, no. you know. So he fell into that like student debt, like like very progressive ideas that you're seeing from, you know, from the AOCs, from, mm. you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, all of these, all of these individuals who've kind of adopted that sort of progressive lane. Like that's very much where he falls okay. in his, in his policies and his politics. He's there, you know, he's, he's like right, right there. there. He's right yeah. there. Okay, he's right <laughs> and I have to imagine, right, that there are probably a lot of uh, reasons that 25-year-olds are not often elected to Congress, right. right? Can you tell me about, like, like why it's kind of unusual for, like, a 25-year-old to make it all the way to D.C.? The unique thing about Maxwell Frost is he mm. dove into activism at such a young age. Mm. You know, if you're going to a vigil, you know, mm-hmm. as a 14-year-old after a mass shooting and are pushing for gun control, like— he just kind of was ahead of the game. Yeah, there's a sheen and like a professionalism to him that I think is rare among 25 year olds. Not even 25 year olds, just like people. People, okay. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he's been an organizer for a very long time. And I think when you're an organizer, like you understand, you have to understand how to communicate and how to bring people together. And you know that's kind of where his chops are. Like yeah. that's kind of that was his nexus. That was his origin story, and that's yeah. and that goes part and parcel with politics, it feels. Yeah. And because of that experience that he had, you know, he was able to translate that into a successful campaign where he is able to, you know, share these messages, be like articulate around like, okay, what do I stand for? Yeah. Um, And I think a lot of politicians, like even ones who have been incumbents for (laughs) ever, like don't necessarily have that skill set. Tomando acción. Aprobando leyes de control de almas. Protegiendo el acceso al aborto. My abuela taught me early on to always look out for my community because everyone deserves dignity and opportunity. So he's very impressive for mm-hmm. his age. So he's actually technically not the youngest member ever elected. So Madison Cawthorn. Oh, yeah, him. Yes. Oof. He was 25 when he was elected, but he was technically a millennial. Mm-hmm. And now Maxwell Frost is Gen Z. So yes. he's the first of this generation. It's kind of like a new era in Congress. And totally. you also have, as we talked a little bit about Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. So she stepped aside. There's a new generation of leadership in the House. Yeah, right. Because Diane Feinstein's, you know, she's retiring. Nancy's stepping down. It feels like there's a turnover that's beginning to happen. And Maxwell is sort of like the face of it for yes. the Democratic Party. Was that your impression of him from oh, interviewing him? Absolutely. So it was fascinating. So I, the idea was really to like follow him around for the first couple days of the 118th Congress. And the night he was supposed to get sworn in, so it took days. It took mm-hmm. until like Saturday. But the night he was supposed to originally get sworn in, he had a swearing in Concert. Yeah, that seems unusual to say the least. Yes, absolutely. And so we go to this place um, right off, like it's called the Wharf in DC, mm-hmm. and it was this concert venue. And 
we go into like the basement, the music is thumping, like yeah. there's a bar, there's like tables with pizza, all of it, and he's throwing a concert. Like truly a concert with live music. You live know. music. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so to celebrate him being sworn in, even though he hasn't been sworn in yet, right? Yes. But there was a concert. And so the interesting thing about him is he's super into music. He's mm-hmm. a drummer. His dad is a musician. Wow. And he launched Music Festival in Orlando a long time ago. But so you saw that side of him. Yes. Like he was he was sort of flitting between MC and congressman. And congressman. So when I spoke with him, he's 26 now, but he really, you know, he talked about these moments and sort of the social moments, the geopolitical moments that kind of shaped who he is and Mm -hmm. who he is now, obviously, as a member of Congress. And he mentioned, you know, remembering being a kid and watching Occupy Wall Street. Mm. Wow. (laughs) And, you know, then Barack Obama, you know, winning the presidency. But really, like, a huge part of what shaped him is gun violence. Wow. So he, yeah. Florida, too. I mean, like, you know, Parkland, there's a lot of... Exactly. A lot of examples. So after the shooting in Connecticut, Mm. he went up there by himself. He went to, like, a vigil hosted by a brother of one of the victims. And he was very young at this time. I might botch the age. I think he was, like, 14. Wow. So he was very young when he got into this, into activism, into gun, you know, gun control, uh, pushing for tighter restrictions and all of that. So he has this background as an activist. And he, you know, he talked about the various things that he's been a part of. Black Lives Matter, he got arrested, Mm -hmm. you know. He's just, that is what his background is. It's in activism. Mm -hmm. And when Val Demings announced that she was going to run for higher office, she ran for Senate, he had people around him that were like, you should run. And he told me that his initial reaction was, hell no. (laughs) Really? Um, And then it was like, you know, they planted the seed and it obviously grew into a congressional campaign that he then won. And so that's kind of who he is today. And those experiences that he had at a very young age are sort of what's shaping him and who he is as a member of Congress now. It's so interesting to hear what experiences are shaping or shaped his sort of political agenda or his, you know, his activism. I think like the real key is sort of his perspective and these things, these moments that have shaped him and sort of how they run in contrast to so many other members of Congress Mm -hmm. and his party. Like they're, you know, these are, they're members of Congress who are like, remember, I mean, JFK getting assassinated. Yeah, like, no, I don't, you know, they're old people. They're old. There are plenty of old <laughs> not people. Not ageist. We're not ageist, being ageist. Not saying that. But just, like, very different things. Like, very different moments that sort of shaped their policies and sort mm. of, like, their approach to being members of Congress. And he just has a whole new set of those. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the fascinating part about him and sort of what he represents as this new generation of change in Congress. Yeah. And, like... I think a part of that, too, is how he expresses his political beliefs and his agenda in terms of social media and tweeting and Instagram and, you know, all of these things that, you know, are now pervasive in culture and society. Every You know, everyone uses social media, but he just has such a fluency, you know, such a funny mm-hmm. way of expressing not only his, you know, political beliefs, but also, like, his taste in music. Like, you know, I follow him on Twitter, and he's just, like, (laughs) tweeting out links to, like, you know, like, different songs, and, you know, he retweeted a Maggie Rogers song the other day, and I was like, wait, that's so great. So he's able to do both of these things in a way that, like, even 
you know, for young Congress members like the squad and AOC, Alon Omar, you know, it's different. It feels different yeah. from him mm-hmm. than it does from other people. Yeah, because he has had social media his whole life. Mm. Like that, like he, middle school, high school, he's just been, you know, that's something that's so innate to like his existence, which yeah. is terrifying. Like, I feel bad <laughs> that he it had is to. Scary. Like, I would not wish that upon anyone. <laughs> right. Like, I feel bad that he had to suffer through that world. But it's organic. And it's mm-hmm. organic in a way that is just notable. And you can tell the difference. Like, there isn't anything forced. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he'll post Instagram stories and it's just natural. Like, yeah. he'll share music on Instagram and it's just, yeah, that's what he's listening to. It doesn't feel forced. You know, it's not like Obama, you know, throwing together his like Spotify playlist <laughs> where it's like, yeah. you know, it's curated. It's crowdsourced. And we can say yes. that and we love it. It's it's a good playlist. But like, he's not, I don't believe that he's, you know, necessarily right. listening to all the tracks, you know, that, you yes. know, Megan The Stallion and Lil Nas X. Maybe he is, but it seems like he's crowdsourcing. Right. Like you see... Maxwell Frost posts something on Instagram and you're like, yeah, I believe you were just listening to that song. (laughs) There's an idea that like, you're, you know, you're political or your, you know, your professional life has to be so separate from Mm -hmm. like your personal life and your, you know, your music tastes and your passions. And I think he's showing that actually the next generation, it's like they can be one and the same. You you know, he's this, you know, this, uh, this person who, yeah, you can like Ariana Grande and also be a gun control advocate, right? Why right. can't why can't you have both? <laughs> exactly. And I think you you hit on something really interesting where it's like there's this sanitization that like mm. happens with like most politicians like where you feel that they're actively separating the professional from the personal. Mm-hmm. And with him there's like no barrier. <laughs> and it's so refreshing and it, it it's making politics like, like you know exciting again. It's a, it's it's been a while honestly since the days of AOC, you know, it's been a while since we've had or I've felt emotionally connected to a, you know, a, a candidate in such a way. Inside the Hive, we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Do, do Democrats feel as strongly about Maxwell Frost as I t- seem to feel about Maxwell Frost? <laughs> so I will say that he has gotten a warm welcome okay. on Capitol Hill. So at his swearing-in concert, <laughs> um, I was shocked by the number of various, like, members of Congress who were there. So mm-hmm. you had you had members of leadership show up, which was unique. So you had like the number two and number three members of Democratic leadership show up. Okay, wow. And then you also had, you know, older, like Sheila Jackson Lee got on stage and was like dancing with okay. like Maxwell Frost. And then you had, you know, sort of his group of younger members mm-hmm. as well. You had like David Cicilline. Like there was just a mix of so many different people, like, and then also like Reverend Jesse Jackson popped by. So obsessed. it's like, so there was just like this, it felt different. Like it mm-hmm. felt, I think I have been fortunate enough to cover other members of Congress. We mentioned the squad. And there was a different kind of 
friction or tension when they came to Congress. Mm. And I think, you know, in many ways that they paved the way for Maxwell totally. Frost. You can't, I feel like you can't get a Maxwell Frost if you don't have the squad, if yeah. you don't have, you know, AOC and Rashida and Alon and, you know, Ayana, right? Yeah. And so, like, they definitely paved the way for him. But I think there's been sort of a seamlessness to his welcome in Congress. And I think a lot of it goes to, you know, who he is as a person. He's mm. very likable. He's very, he's cool. I do want to ask, and I do think it is important that, you know, given Maxwell's warm reception or relatively Mm -hmm. warm reception or warmer than the squad, it feels like gender has to play a role in that, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, he is a cisgendered man and, you know, the squad is, you know, all women, right? Mm -hmm. So how did you see that dynamic play out? Yeah, I think, you know, there was when you think about the squad and sort of when they came to Congress, it was different. One, like you had Ayanna Presley and Ocasio-Cortez, they beat out Democratic incumbents. Mm-hmm. So they beat Democrats' friends, like yeah, people friends. that they had worked with for like decades <laughs> and knew. So it was like, so that they had that coming in. But there was also, there was definitely this undercurrent of like sexism in mm. so much that was happening. I mean, you know, the way in which you saw Ocasio-Cortez get like, death threats and just like, you know, very sexist threats, like attacks, you Mm -hmm. know, it was like a different level of vitriol that was very entwined with our gender. And obviously with Maxwell Frost, you don't have that. Like it is different. So not only did they pave the way for Maxwell Frost, but also that was just an element that he hasn't had to deal with yeah. in a way that they did. And it's not that he's not getting judgment for being young or he's probably being criticized for the fact that he is accessible on social media mm-hmm. and all of this. Like, you can never please anybody, especially in politics. <laughs> um, but I think it is sort of fascinating to see the the difference over these last couple of years in terms of the fact that the Democratic Party and these other members that were there, they were excited about yeah. Maxwell Frost. And they view him as, you know, this new bridge to a new generation. And when I was speaking with him, he said, he said something that really stuck with me. He was like, it's not that Gen Z has been like champing at the bit, like waiting to get into Congress. He's like, we literally just got old enough. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, but he said, we just got old enough and we're already here. Like Gen Z isn't waiting. And I Mm. do think that there is something about, you know, this new generation of leaders, like of activists, of individuals that it's, it's kind of exciting. I want to ask you too, about Frost's financial struggles that mm-hmm. he's really open about, too. And did you talk to him about that at all? Yeah. So so he, you know, his resume, you know, he worked at, like, the ACLU, and he worked um, for—I'm uh, I'm blinging on the name right now, but the uh, organization that was started by the Parkland kids, uh-huh. you know, gun control. Like, these aren't very, like, lucrative things to work for. And, yeah. like— during his congressional campaign, you know, he would hop in a car and drive Uber. Like, that was what he was doing. Wow. Like, he, you know, like, by day, he's, like, <laughs> running for Congress. By night, he's picking you up. Yeah. And so I think he, and again, he's 26 years old. Like, it's not like he's going to be flush with cash yeah. at this age. <laughs> but so it was, like, there was kind of this interesting dust, not dust up, but, like, you know, when he— is he came to D.C., you know, he had been elected. It was, like, during the gap of, like, when he was elected to, like, when he actually was sworn in. And he tried to get an apartment in D.C., and he got rejected. He got turned down because his credit score wasn't good enough, That's wasn't so high crazy. enough. And, you know, he talked about the fact—like, he was very open about it. He's like, look, I—like, 
he hurt his credit, like, when he was running for Congress. Like, mm-hmm. this just, this happens. Campaigns like, are expensive. Exactly. And he was very open about it. And it's just sort of one of these things where, one, you kind of think, like, you could go to the landlord and be like, hey, guys, like, <laughs> like, uh, just, you know, like, I won, like, I'm going to have I, a really good job yeah. in January. Trust me, once the dust <laughs> settles with the whole McCarthy of it all, like, it's, I'm good to go. Exactly. Like, <laughs> because, you know, members of Congress, like, you basically have to live in two places because you have to live in your Congress. district, you have to live in your, you know, you have to represent your yeah. your district, but you also have to be in DC, and that's mm-hmm. that is financially. And I mean, not to go back to the macro of like Congress in general, but <laughs> there's a reason I think why a lot of Congress is a lot older because to yes. to be able to live that lifestyle, <laughs> you sort of have to have the funds and the means and mm-hmm. the ability to do that, and not every 25 year old, you know, can can make that happen. Having financial struggles is such a normal, <laughs> relatable American thing. It is an thing. normal American, relatable yeah. problem. I don't wish financial struggles on anybody, but it's. I think it's great that you have people in Congress who can understand that and, mm-hmm. you know, understand the challenges that people go through, not just like running for office, but in general, like getting an apartment is hard, yeah. you know? You know, we've been focusing on Maxwell and the Democratic Party. Are there any corollaries in the Republican Party? There was sort of like a fostering of younger talent within the Republican Party that was kind of absent from the Democratic Party mm. for a while there. I hate to say young guns, but like we all remember the young guns, <laughs> yeah. right? Like the Eric Cantor, right? Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy. Oh. <laughs> um, so some of them have clearly flamed up. Yeah. And now you're kind of seeing that that change. The Republican Party is still – like there are still – definitely, you know, newer, younger members of the caucus and all of that. But I think you're kind of seeing the Democratic Party a bit catch up with that. But like, I think what you're seeing in the Democratic Party right now is like, you know, the passing of the torch Mm -hmm. and, you know, a passing of, you know, power influence to a newer generation. And the interesting thing is like the Republican Party actually had been better at that for a long time yeah like you so one of the things was is like the way the democratic party was set up in congress is there was a lot of seniority so it you know committee assignments like being the head of a committee was often based on okay who's been here the longest yeah who's literally just been here Yes, like, have you been here? Great, you're in charge. It's you, great. Yes. And so, like, that was the dynamic. And it still is. You've seen that shaken up a little bit. It's not to say that experienced individuals or older members of Congress shouldn't be there. But I think there's obviously a benefit to, like, a mix of perspectives. And I also think you're seeing organizations that are are becoming feeders. You know, like, Mm. um, you know— these activist organizations or individuals, like you're seeing a lot of people kind of come from that activist space. Like Maxwell Frost was an activist. Mm-hmm. Rashida Tlaib, activist. activist. And so you're kind of seeing um, a new batch of talent kind of grow out of these different spheres that were just kind of not really feeding Congress for a while mm-hmm. there. But like the Republican Party had just like a better infrastructure to boost young talent. Yeah. Like, look, Elise Stefanik is 38 years old and mm. she is the third most powerful person in Congress right now. Wow. You know, she's the third ranking in Republican leadership. So, it's like, that's that's young. Like, yeah, that's young, yeah. The average age of a member of Congress is, like, twice that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So that's still happening. I mean, I do think <laughs> George Santos has gotten, like, a lot of that. A lot of the, a lot of the clicks and a lot of the press thus far <laughs> um, for being sort of young and maybe insane. But, but there yeah. are other there, – there are other people, you know, across the aisle, I guess, that young and are making waves within the party, mm-hmm. which is, I think, important to remember and to 
consider, to think about. Right. Yeah, like, Stefanik was the youngest woman ever elected to Congress until AOC came along. So mm-hmm. it's like, it, it's happening on both sides. And I think that that's a really positive thing for both parties, that you are kind of seeing, again, it's just like a mix of perspectives. Like, we're different. Like, a, like Maxwell Frost is going to have different life experiences than Nancy Pelosi, like, full stop. Yeah. You know? 100%. Inside the Hive will be back in just a moment. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. How old, if ever, is too old for national office? This current Congress is the oldest Congress in U.S. history. I think we already have quite a serious issue with the gerontocracy. I hear this word thrown around a lot, gerontocracy, right, to sort of describe our political state. And not to sound ageist, because I'm not ageist, we're not ageist, but is that a, a term that's being thrown around in the halls of D.C.? Yeah, I mean, I think, so Webster's Dictionary defines <laughs> gerontocracy. Yeah, what is a gerontocracy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it's it's basically like a government run by older people. Yes, like old that people, is old, old people, people in charge. Yeah, so Joe Biden is 80 years old. It is fair to say that Congress is old. Yeah, like, Joe Biden, is, oldest president of all time. <laughs> yeah, so people do talk about this, and they talk about this idea of like gerontocracy, but the thing is, is I think it's changing. I think that's shifting. And I mm. think, you know, one of the really interesting things that you see right now in the Democratic Party is Nancy Pelosi has been challenged. Like, it, it's not as though, like, every time, you know, every cycle of Congress, it wasn't that, like, it was a given. Yeah. I mean, it pretty much was a given. But, like, she was always challenged. Like, people questioned, like, when are you going to step down? When are you going to step aside? Like, totally. This has been an ongoing conversation forever. And, you know, she kept it. Like, she kept the leadership. You know, she was speaker or minority leader for decades. decades. And I think one of the things that's so fascinating about this moment is that there has been this passing of the torch to mm-hmm. Hakeem Jeffries. Mm. And you're seeing that shift. Obviously, Joe Biden is still president. But we touched on this idea of, you know, his policies and his legislation and sort of how progressive it has been. Like, yeah. people say, all the time. They're like, Joe Biden has been the most progressive president since FDR. Oldest and most progressive. You don't normally think of those as going hand in hand. And yet. I think you're seeing a shift in terms of, okay, who are these members of Congress listening to? Like, what are Mm -hmm. the issues? You know, what are they pushing? Like, what is the type of legislation that they're passing? And I don't think it's as reflective of like, you know, the median age of Congress anymore. And I think you're really sort of seeing this generational shift with, like, Mm -hmm. Jeffries and, you know, fresh leadership on the Democratic side. Totally. It's funny. I mean, (laughs) it's it's crazy. I feel crazy that I'm about to say this, but, you know, 2024 is coming, right? It's like, it's... (laughs) I'm shaking my head. Shaking her head. (laughs) Shaking her head. (laughs) No, 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 no. But... Well, it is terrifying that, like, we're off to the races. Like, 2024 is is upon us. It's upon us. You know, 
Nikki Haley's in the race. Like, Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis. Like, you know, you have folks hopping in. Like, we're back, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> but um, I think what you, what is interesting is, you know, during during the last presidential cycle when Biden was, um, well, so back, like when he first got his nomination, like when there was like, you know, the messy Democratic yes, primary. All of the candidates. What you saw was a real unification of the Democratic Party behind him. Like mm-hmm. you had Buttigieg hop behind him. You had Elizabeth Warren get behind him. And like very notably, you had Bernie Sanders get behind him. Yes. And it really married these different parts of the Democratic Party. And it was really important. And it played a huge role in his victory in his election. But what you also saw is since Biden has been in office, the fact that the party kind of unified behind him, that Bernie Sanders got behind him, all of these things have been reflected in what he's done as president. I mean, obviously, during the pandemic, you saw very progressive legislation being passed. Mm -hmm. Democrats had, you know, they had the House, the Senate and the presidency. You get stuff done. You get stuff done. You get stuff done when you don't have a divided government. And so you really saw that. And I think his legislative achievements to date are really reflective of the fact that uh, the party is becoming increasingly progressive, but also, like, what are the power centers? Like, who are these voters? You know, young voters are very important, and they're going to be, you know, interested in things like student debt relief. Yes. And— Insurance. Insurance. <laughs> you know, and, so it's yeah. it's definitely reflected in sort of what we've seen Biden do. And I think, you know, he's been applauded like across the party spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, the big tent is like, you know, Gun behind home. him. It's behind yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's, it's behind him. I think it's important for me and for people to not necessarily associate like age with a lack of progressivism or getting things done. Mm-hmm. And, when you look at the presidential race so far. People are just kind of waiting to see, like, what Biden does. I mean, I have to imagine, like, capturing the youth vote, capturing the Maxwell Frost of the world is going to be crucial mm-hmm. to winning, to you know, to winning the election, to getting reelected. Well, I think, you know, what we saw in the midterms was very um, indicative of what we're likely to see again. I think people turned out. Abortion mm. was obviously a huge issue. Mm. And it's still going to be a huge issue. Absolutely. Like, it's not—that's not going away. And, like, I'm genuinely a little confused as to, like, what the Republican Party is doing, doing. in yeah. that regard. Like, the midterms happened, and there was no red wave. It was a ripple because of abortion, 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 abortion. And then they're like, yep, cool, got it. And they're like, also, more, <laughs> yeah. more anti-abortion more legislation. Abortion legislation. That's <laughs> what like, the people want. They're like— Good call. They're like, thanks for the analysis, but... <laughs> but actually, we're going to go in a different direction. We're actually yes. going to try this again. It's like... Don't. As long as, you know, conservative lawmakers continue at this clip of mm-hmm. increasing restrictions on abortion, what I think you're going to see is, you know, more of this motivation behind the youth, behind voters. That kind of ties back into sort of what makes Maxwell Frost special. I do think he's just, he is kind of like the future of what you're going to see from the Democratic Party. And that's what other members were saying. That was like, you know, when people talk about it, they're like, yeah, this is this is the next generation. This episode of Inside the Hive was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis and Jennifer Nelson. For more news from Inside the Hive, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at vanityfair.com forward slash newsletter forward slash hive. And let us know what you thought of this episode, or if you have any comments or questions, tweet us while it's still possible. I'm at Abigail Tracy. And I'm at Chris Triss. 
Join us again next week for another episode of Inside the Hive, where Wall Street, Washington, and Silicon Valley meet. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.